I want to pick up at verse 21. So I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 29, picking up at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah uh, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not done so in our country to give you the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed a week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Let's uh, ask the Lord for his grace at this time. Let's pray. Father, we uh, acknowledge that... Um, we're in need of you. We recognize that, that uh, based on what the writings of the New Testament, that the Christian life is to be a spirit-empowered life and that all that is done is to be in step with the spirit. And so we ask by your grace that your spirit, whom you have given as a gift to believers because of what Christ has done, that he would minister today. That as the word is read, that it would prick hearts, transform lives. May they hear you speak. May they connect with you. May you bring about the transformation of the inner person that only you can do. For it's only you that can turn starts of hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work in and among us today. We want you to be glorified. We are the only one. Your name is the only one that we want to see lifted on high. Thank you for this opportunity to gather as believers and think about you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So I ran across a story about a gentleman by the name of Clayton Lush. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with him if you follow rugby. Uh, he used to be a, uh, a rugby player in Australia or at least uh, from Australia. And I guess that uh, on the day when this happened, he would have never imagined that he would be standing before a judge. Considering his past, in the past he had built schools in the Solomon Islands through uh, the funding of a Rotary Club. He had uh, hosted a Christmas Carol TV show for the community. Uh, he had donated money in the past to help with the research of spina bifida. Uh, he owned a, a successful carpentry business. He had fathered two children, and uh, because he had had a good carpentry business, he uh, was able to host an Australian uh, TV show called Building Ideas, and yet here he found himself in front of a judge. Uh, and it was in this courtroom scene that the downfall uh, that happened in his life was explained. Uh, he had succumbed to what is known as, or has popular, been popularized as, one of the seven 
deadly sins, the sin of envy. Uh, when he appeared before the court, he was 41 years old, and he had been part of uh, a, a consortment, uh, a group of 16 other South Australians who had been a part of a four-year deal that had uh, engaged in a $40 million enterprise of growing cannabis, uh, which had been one of their country's largest drug rings. Uh, the lawyer in the courtroom shared with the court that day that his client had been working 12-hour days, seven days a week, when he became envious of one of his clients. Uh, he had been hired by a very wealthy man by the name of Storm Alexander Strong, who happened to be the ringleader of this operation. And the lawyer went on to say, and quote, uh, it became apparent to Mr. Lush that Mr. Strong was involved in activities which perhaps could be unlawful but he did not know what they were as he was looking at the lifestyle. He was looking at the fact that Mr. Strong never appeared to work and seemed to have an awful lot of money to spend on the kind of activity at his home. So as he's doing work and these costly renovations, he looks at the lifestyle of Mr. Strong over this long period of time of working and notices his life and how easy his life seems to be. And he decided as a result of that to ask Mr. Strong, I don't know what it is that you're into, but whatever it is that you're into, I want to be part of that. And so he was engaged in that, but later came to be arrested. So I simply have a question for us today. Have you ever been in a position where you have desired what someone else has? Be it a quality that they have or a possession that they have, have you desired it? I know in my life at different points I have struggled with envy, of others. And it can be about a variety of things. It, it could be over the fact of, that you've admired the intellect of someone else and you want that for your, yourself. It could be about the opportunities that they've received that you've not received and, and you want what they have. You want those opportunities. It, it could be the health of another person or, or their physical appearance or uh, it could be as uh, Mr. Lush did, you can envy the income of someone else. You can envy their influence. You could envy their marital status. You could envy their spiritual maturity. You could envy their lifestyle. You could envy the children that they have or what their children are doing versus what your children are doing. And the list could go on ad infinitum. But one of the things that the Bible makes clear is that envy is a dangerous thing. And if we allow it into our hearts and into our lives, it has a destructive consequence. So how do we deal with envy as those who are seeking to live by faith in God? Well, there are three simple ideas that are just, I think, get us on the road, maybe not the whole answer, but start us down the path uh, to addressing envy when it appears uh, in our lives. So let me get to the Bible story just to rehearse some of the things that we've covered. It's been a few days since we've gotten together, so let me just remind you of where we are in the lives of the children of Abraham. As you recall, Jacob is taking a long journey somewhat north, approximately somewhere 500 miles because uh, he's been on this journey sent by his parents. Uh, and we find out that he finally arrived last week to his destination safely. We know that this was not just by happenstance, but because of the dream of Bethel, God has been watching out for Jacob in his travels, and that's why he has arrived safely to Haran. He's also been able to accomplish what his parents had hoped, at least what his father knew about. His mother had a, a secondary motive which she had not communicated to her husband 
Uh, she had double purposes, but she communicated one that was more acceptable to her husband because it would have revealed her hand. Uh, and that was for her son to marry a wife from her people group. And successfully, he did marry a relative. Now, I must put pause here to say that we today do not endorse uh, you marrying your relatives. Uh, if you're thinking about doing that, please don't do that. <laughs> please come and see us before. There are so many other options. Just, <laughs> just There just are. So, um, you know, the world was different back then, you know. Not as much access. Uh, we discovered, uh, <laughs> let me get back to the message before I get off on a sidetrack. Uh, <laughs> We discovered from Pastor Mike's message last week, uh, but in this whole marriage situation, that he ends up with more than what he bargained for. Uh, he ends up married to her older, sis older sister uh, through an act of deception. And, and thankfully, uh, in his case, a week later, he's able to marry uh, Rachel, the younger sister who he had actually spent the seven years uh, working for. And, and it's this context that sets the stage for what happens in their lives and what we see happening in their family interactions. And out of that, we get to learn something about envy and how we as believers are to deal with it as those who have faith in God. Which brings me to my first point, and that's this. Uh, God chooses those whom he wants to bless. Let me say that again. God chooses those whom he wants to bless. Now, I want to qualify that statement by saying that often what we see in the scriptures is that God chooses to bless people according to his will, that is, where he's going, his purposes, what he wants to accomplish in the world, and based on the nature of his character. So according to his will and based on the nature of his character. And let me show you how I derive that from the text. So first, let's back up to the will part. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, that dream at Bethel where God arrived. Remember, Jacob was not looking for God, was not searching for God. God just showed up in his life unexpectedly. Uh, and he reaffirmed to him that he was truly the inheritor of the promises of Abraham when he was at a very low point in his life, when he had been stripped of everything that had given him security in his life. And now that he was in a place of insecurity, God appeared to him and affirmed to him that he would inherit these promises. And as a part of that, God stated to him that part of God's revealed will, because God had actually spoken, that his life Part of God's will for Jacob's life included marriage and children. But at the time that God speaks to him, he's a bachelor. He has neither one. He's neither married nor has children. And so we find out from that that God's will for Jacob's life includes there's going to be some type of marriage in the future and there's going to be some kids. Now, some of us probably wish that God would have said that to us. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what happened in his life. And that takes us back to the text for God's character. Now, let me take you back to the text, Genesis 29 verse 31 through verse 34. And we get to see the character aspect here. Now, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Judah. 
Then she ceased bearing. So the text tells us with uh, unequivocally that God has chosen to bless Leah with the gift of fertility. Uh, in the first four years, depending on how you work out the chronology of their marriage, it looks like she has one son after another. It, it seems as though as soon as she gets through having a baby and she's able to conceive again, that process happens again. But what's interesting is about what she calls her sons. Jacob is not in the naming process, although sometimes the father is, but not in this one, uh, which shows us something about the relationships that he has with his wives. Uh, the wife takes the lead, and she names her sons to remember what's happening in her marriage relationship with her husband. Leah feels or felt unloved. And to make matters worse, that would be okay if she wasn't as desirous of it. But we see in the text repeatedly that there is this strong desire to have Jacob's affection. Now, we have to remember a little bit about Leah's life. Leah has been the older sister who has grown up in a home with a stunning younger sister. And unfortunately, she's just not as attractive as her younger sister. I don't know if you've ever been around or had a relative that's just stunning to look at, that just has natural, uh, unequivocal beauty. It's amazing how people react when they're around, how they seem to always move to the forefront and everyone else kind of just lives in their shadow. And I'm sure being uh, in the presence of her younger sister and often as they grew up because of her younger sister's beauty, she often found herself in the background, which would have left in her a hole, a, a longing for attention. And then one day this relative shows up, uh, perhaps I'm guessing because his mother was beautiful, Jacob probably was a, a, a decent-looking man. We at least know that he's physically uh, able to do things, as Pastor Mike talked about. So he might have a muscular feature, has some of those attractive features about him. And then he comes and he lives in their house for seven years. She knows that her sister is the one who's been bargained for to be married with. But here she is, the older sister, living around this man, working in the home. And he's working like not, the time is not even passing or bothering him because he loves her sister. And perhaps for her, at some point in her heart, she began to cultivate the thought that perhaps he could look at me that same way. And perhaps for her, the attraction began to start towards Jacob over those seven years in the house with the hope that maybe one day it could be her for this time instead of Rachel. And maybe that's why she complied with her father's plot. Maybe that's why she went along with what would seem to be something that would be disadvantaged for her. Or maybe it was just simply perhaps because she had spent that evening giving herself fully to him uh, under the guise of being her sister, that she hoped that in the morning he would wake up and feel differently about her and look at her with the way he had looked at Rachel. Now, we can understand from a human standpoint, I'm not saying that we condone it. I'm not saying we support it. I'm not saying that we endorse it. But we can understand Jacob's feelings from a human standpoint. Uh, here he is. He has spent the last seven years working. Uh, and, and if you take ancient uh, things into account, you realize he's paid a higher price for uh, this wife because the average shepherd who would have worked three to four years to pay for a wife, but because Laban has him over a barrel, he 
uh, takes advantage of that and charges him seven years worth of wages because he doesn't have any other options. He, he doesn't have the money to pay the dowry and the bride price, and so he's taken advantage of by his uncle. But here he is. He has labored seven years for a particular person to marry. And when he wakes up the next morning, he finds it's not the woman that he chose. Uh, you can probably imagine that there, there might be a, a, a bit of resentment in his heart as, as he has contemplated in his mind the fact that whether the, the father's influence, as great as it was in the ancient world, that, that some kind of way Leah went along with the plot and duped him into this marriage he didn't want to be in. And now here he was, locked in by covenant uh, with this woman that he didn't choose, and now he was have to spend the rest of his life caring for her and taking care of her. And you can probably understand why there is some distance in his heart. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm simply saying we could understand it from a human standpoint. And it's into this less than ideal marriage that we find that God intervenes. When God, who as we know from the story of Hagar, that God sees and hears, God is paying attention to what's happening in the home of Jacob. And when God sees the disparity between how Jacob lavishes his affection upon Rachel and neglects Leah, that God visits their house in justice. God makes a decision, and he decides that he's going to give to Leah the honor that women sought in their culture, in the ancient world. He's going to bless her to bear children, and not just children, but sons, and she's going to be plentiful in her ability to bear them while he's going to allow her sister, the one who has been blessed with beauty and affection from her husband, to struggle with infertility and bear the stigma in their culture of what it meant to be a woman who was barren. But why does God help Leah? Because God cares about those who are marginalized by society. We read about God's character uh, in the law of Moses when Moses comes years later to reflect in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is what he says about God. He, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and the, he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Those who are marginalized in society, God cares about them, and he ex exhorts his people that they ought to emulate, imitate him in caring about those who are marginalized. And I asked our topic of envy is this. You don't need to allow envy in your heart because God is the one who decides who receives the blessing. God is the one who chooses who will be blessed. And that brings me to the second thought, which is simply this. Don't allow envy into your heart. Don't allow envy into your heart. Bertrand Russell, a famous British philosopher and atheist, once said this. Envy is one of the most potent causes of unhappiness. It is a universal and most unfortunate aspect of human nature because not only is the envious person rendered unhappy by his envy, but also wishes to inflict misfortune on others. And now while we might not agree much with Bertrand Russell about his philosophy of life and his view of God, I do think he's correct about envy on this point. And we see the negative consequences that it has in Rachel's life when she allows it to take place in her heart. For that, let me take you back to the text, and we will read a lengthy section, chapter 30, verses 1 through verse 21. 
When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave to her to Jacob as a wife. Then, then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrake. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maidservant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So when Rachel sees what's happening in the family, her sister is extremely fertile and she's uh, having children, it seems, just by Jacob looking at her. Um, that envy takes place in her heart. Perhaps not with the first child, but when she kept watching her sister have children and she was not able to have any children as the years passed, envy took root in her heart. What did it produce in her life? It produced unhappiness, lack of contentment, and desperation. And because she was desperate, she did what many of us do when we become desperate for something that we want. We try all kinds of things to get what we want out of life. And so we see her do this on three occasions. First, she starts off with the nearest solution she thinks can resolve the problem. Who is the one can fix this problem for me? Well, my husband can solve this problem. And although we as men, it has often been said, enjoy when our wives come to us with a fix-it problem. In this case, this is not one that Jacob can fix. And so he recognizes that and rightly responds to his wife, not in tone, 
but in the message that he conveys to her. Uh, he, uh, when she comes and she demands in desperation that he fix this problem and get her pregnant, uh, Jacob responds in frustration and anger with his wife. I'm not saying that's the best way to respond to your wife. But he's frustrated uh, with her as she comes with this unrealistic demand. Because in his frustration, though his tone is not right, his theology is. And that's simply that he reminds her that uh, there are things that are in human control that we could do. And they have already been doing that. But there are things that lie outside of human control that only God can do. And this is where her problem has arisen. He says, listen, I I've done all that I can do as your husband to resolve this issue. But we have come to a point that I cannot solve. We have entered into the realm that belongs only to God. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with God. But notice what happens in her relationship because of her envy. It brings friction in her marital relationship with her husband. What does she do in response to her husband's uh, correcting her or pointing her in the right direction? Well, if one human solution doesn't work, why not try another? And so that's exactly what she does. She turns from her husband and says, well, if you won't do it, then we can at least rely on a common cultural practice. Genesis has already set us up for this. Uh, it has told us that Sarah did this before, and we saw how that turned out. So we would, as readers of Genesis, be thinking, that's probably not a good idea. But nevertheless, she invokes the same practice that Sarah invokes, and she says, I'm going to try the surrogacy plan and adopt the child through my handmaiden. And so she gives her servant to become a slave wife of Jacob. And from the naming of one of the children, it seems that she gives one of those types of prayers that we often do when we're desperate. We initiate a plot to solve our problem, and then we say to God, hey, can you just kind of support what I'm doing? And that's kind of what I think is going on here uh, in the text. She does pray for one of the names of the children, but I think it's God support what I'm doing to resolve my issue. Can you just get on board with me? And, and, and in God's mercy, he does. Uh, he allows uh, Bilhah to be able to bear two sons to Jacob. But it does not resolve the issue that's in Rachel's life and Rachel's heart. It doesn't give her what she's really looking for, as we'll see later uh, in the text. Uh, it doesn't give her children. Uh, it gives somebody else in the family children and has raised the status of another woman in the family. Now, in the naming of the second child of her servant, we find out how she views what's going on in the family. Uh, the, the English doesn't translate it here. They're, they're bringing it across, but in, in the Hebrew and the original, it's, it's with strivings of God I have wrestled and struggled with my sister, and because I've had these two children, now I have prevailed in that struggle. And so she views this baby battle as a struggle with her sister to receive honor in society and in her family because it seems like her sister's now getting all of the honor and she's getting none. But what's interesting is that when she opts for a human solution to solve her problem to get her one-upmanship over her sister, well, it's interesting because when you try a human solution, others can do the same thing as well. And so her sister, the text says, when Leah saw Rachel's plan, she said, well, hey, two can play at that game. We can both do that. 
So she gave her servant. And it's almost like there's some type of poker going, game going on with children. So you, I see you want to raise me uh, uh, a, a servant and two kids. Well, I can do that. I'll see your servant and two kids. Here's mine. Let me put that on the board. And so that's exactly what Leah does. And then she uh, is able to bear two sons. Now they've been <laughs> equaled out, and Leah is still yet ahead in this baby battle. And when that doesn't work, what does she do? She turns to yet another human practice. Well, the husband didn't work. The common practice didn't work. Well, let's just go to superstition. So now she turns to a superstitious practice of her day where they uh, had believed that there was a certain plant, a mandrake, uh, which had grown in the region that had believed it was an aphrodisiac and had fertility properties to it. And so she said, you know what? If I can get my hands on some of those, that would be great. This can maybe resolve my problem. And so we get to see the tension and the breakdown in the relationship between the sisters in this interaction of what happens. And so uh, Leah's uh, oldest son, who's somewhere between four to six years old, has gone out and in the field somewhere, he's discovered mandrakes and he's brought them home to his mother because she has ceased from bearing. That could be one of two reasons. Either Jacob is just not choosing to sleep with her or uh, she's just not ha having children at this point. And so she shows up, he shows up at home to give his mom these, this... Uh, little thing because you know whose team he's on. He's on mom's team, right? right? And he wants to see mom succeed and win uh, and, and not his aunt Rachel. So uh, he, he's coming alongside. And so Rachel finds out and because she's so desperate, she goes to her sister and in a polite fashion, she asks her sister, please help me. Let me have some of those mandrakes. Would you allow me to have them? And it's in this moment we see the pent up bitterness and anger in Leah's heart towards what's going on in the family dynamic. She, she doesn't respond with kindness. She responds with frustration and anger. And what does she say to her sister? So you took away my man, and now you want my son's stuff too? Hold up, sister. Back up a minute. Now what's interesting is how Rachel responds. And it seems that she's broken at this point because she does not call the facts to carpet. Now, now, Rachel could have easily have copped an attitude. She could have been like, well, hold up now. Let's remember how this really did go down. You and daddy got together and you took away what was mine, right? And you got a marriage that you shouldn't have even been in. So let's not even start. But she didn't go that route. She's so desperate and broken at this point. She said, okay, okay, okay. I got you. I know, I know, I know you ain't been loved. I know, I know you're hurting. So let, let's make a deal then. Let, let's, let's cut a deal. You want something and I want something. We can both win here. So, so, so let's bargain a deal. And so she cuts a deal with her sister to which her sister agrees to. Now what's interesting is it, it puts her in a position where she loses even more because now God listens to Leah again and opens her womb again and she has three more children. And now Leah has the perfect number of children, seven children. Rachel is losing the baby battle. All that she has tried to her husband, common cultural practice, and even superstition has not achieved what she wanted. Her envy has not brought her to the point of resolving her issue. She still has nothing. Dr. Gary Collins has stated, he says, there's a distinction between jealousy and envy. To envy is to want something which belongs to another. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, servant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. In contrast, jealousy is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another. And thus, because of envy, and I would say jealousy as well, because of the way of what it does in relationships and in the human heart, 
it's dangerous because it destroys relationships. Ran across this interesting story about um, what happened in the life of Michelangelo and uh, the painter Raphael. Uh, in the year 1503, when Julius II became the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, he started immediately a uh, beautifying and building project of the, of the Vatican. And so he hired in 1509 Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel. And uh, Michelangelo reluctantly agreed because he stated to the Pope that uh, his major field was sculpting. And that was really what he wanted to focus on, not necessarily uh, painting. And shortly after that, the Pope would then, uh, in, a, in addition, commissioned uh, Raphael to paint the frescoes in the papal study. And so you've got two artists working in the same kind of vicinity. Raphael himself was eight years younger than Michelangelo, and he had moved when he was 20 years old uh, to the area of Florence to work with uh, Michelangelo to study under him, to study under Leonardo da Vinci and others. Uh, and he was a gifted, gifted, gifted painter. But it was during this work uh, on the Vatican that a rivalry happened between these two uh, artists. Uh, to let you get a sense of how Michelangelo felt about Raphael, he said this about him. He said, uh, translated into English, all that he ever knew of art, he learned from me. Now, we know that that's not necessarily true, but that's how he felt about Raphael. And there was this envy going on. Uh, on one hand, Michelangelo was envying Raphael because he felt like he had been given a favor and, and the easier job by the Pope. And then Raphael, on the other hand, envied because of the prestigious place that uh, Michelangelo's work would have been displayed. And so because of that, uh, that friction grew to the point that this once uh, amicable relationship, because at one point he had studied under him, uh, this teacher and this student relationship, had, because of their envy, had broken down their relationships to so much so to the point that they refused to speak to one another. It was interesting that all this happened while they were supposedly doing work for the glory of God. Envy is dangerous. It was dangerous 4,000 years ago. It was dangerous 500 years ago. And envy is still dangerous today. Uh, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about two twin brothers, Al and Elliot uh, Golden. And uh, the big thing was the reason they had included them in the Wall Street Journal was because uh, after a number of years, these twin brothers had finally reconciled their relationship because one of the brothers had become envious of the other brother and decided to cut off contact for a long period of time. Envy is a dangerous thing, and it can destroy relationships. And that's why the Bible encourages us to not allow it in our hearts. Proverbs 14.30 puts it this way, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Galatians 5.21 encourages us to view envy as not a work of the spirit, but a work of the flesh. So what's the solution to this when it appears in our lives? The solution to envy is well, the recommendation that Paul gives to the church at Philippi when he writes to them, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's my third idea. Instead of envying someone else about whatever it is that they have that you want, ask God and trust him to answer you. Let's go back to the text. Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. 
Based on the chronology of what has been historically taken, it has been about six years of battle with infertility. And now Rachel, who had once been an insider with her beauty and the affection that had been heaped upon her, now has become culturally an outsider because of her barrenness and the stigma that has been attached to that, being somewhat viewed as one who would be under the curse or wrath of God because she could not bear a child, especially a son. And it seems like at some point in her life, she finally comes to a point where in her brokenness, I'm not sure if her motives were pure, but she finally cries out to God uh, in a different way, it seems, and God in mercy answers her prayer. He opens her womb, removes her barrenness, takes away her approach, and allows her to bear a son. Not because she deserves it, but because God simply cares about his people. Hebrews 4.16 and 1 Peter 5.7 encourages us that in light of when we face the cares of this world, that we are also, as Jacob encouraged his wife, to bring our envy to God. And we can do this because of what Jesus has done, exactly what Pastor Paul prayed. Because Jesus, another baby born in the line and family of Abraham, took our reproach upon himself, gave his life, paid for our sins, and then he died for us. God raised him from the dead. He's been ascended to heaven where he's been glorified and now intercedes for us. And because of what God has done through Christ, the throne of heaven is a throne of grace. The door is open. God waits to hear from you. So when envy shows up in your heart, what are you to do with it? You are to take your request to God. Because it is, the heart is the realm in which God works to free us from those things that weigh us down in this life. Now, does that mean that when you go to God, that he is going to give you what it is that you're seeking? Well, remember I said he blesses people according to his will and his character. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we remember the story of Paul when he came and made a request to God, and God's response was what? My grace is sufficient for you. James chapter 4, sometimes we take our request before God, but the reason God says no is because what we really want is to consume it upon our own lust. Because God's character, of the nature of his character, he will not answer in that way. And that's why we take our request to God. Let me close with a story uh, that happened in the early 1900s. There was a famous preacher by the name of F.B. Meyer who had come over from England and that part of the world to minister and do revivals in this part of the world, uh, somewhere in Northfield, Massachusetts, early 1900s. Uh, he was a great preacher, and he came over, and because of his great preaching style, his oratory skill, he drew large crowds. And so he was preaching, having, making good way and success, and preaching, and people were gathering to hear him. Uh, in light of that, uh, another English preacher by the name of uh, G. Campbell Morgan also decided to come over. And it happened to be that G. Campbell Morgan happened to be a better preacher than F.B. Meyer. And because he was a better preacher and because he was more eloquent in his speech, the crowds began to shrink for Mr. Meyer and grow for Mr. Morgan. And he admits that in light of that, because for the reality is, just to acknowledge it for pastors, when your church starts shrinking and the church down the street starts growing because they got a new pastor, that can be hard on the pastor. And so in his heart, he admitted that in light of that, he began to envy his brother's ministry. 
But it was interesting what he said that he did in light of the fact of when envy showed up in his heart. And this is what he said. The only way I could conquer my feelings, feelings of envy, is to pray for Mr. Morgan daily, which I do. What he decided to do was change it. Now, because I'm envying him, the best thing that I can do for him to resolve what's going on in my heart is not to pray against him, but to pray for him. And it's amazing that when you begin to pray for someone else, how God works in your heart so as to remove envy and replace it with love. And that is the cure to the envious situation. When it shows up in your heart, whoever it is, whatever is going on, don't pray against them, pray for them. And allow the Lord to work in your heart. That's the solution. Prayer. When your heart goes in the wrong direction, Take it to God and allow him to redirect your heart. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that whatever it is that we're battling in life, whatever it is that we want that someone else has, help us, Lord, uh, as Paul said, he learned contentment. It was a learned skill. Help us not to envy. And, and Lord... Some of us may not even know that that's what's going on in our heart, that strange feeling and emotion, and why we feel this uneasiness whenever we're around that person or when we talk about them, there's always this uncomfortableness in us because they have something we want. Lord, Lord it'll do us no good. You're the one who chooses to bless and give to others what they have. And, and some may have even gotten it through illegitimate means. We don't really know. But we know that we cannot allow our hearts to become corrupt and dark, saturated with envy and what it will do in us because it will make us the type of people we don't want to be. We won't look like Jesus. And so we want to bring it to you and ask.